I'm back in plenary session, real life magician. I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Olivier. Dr. Olivier is, of course, a practicing oncologist. He is visiting from Geneva, Switzerland. He's a visiting scholar here for one year, but he comes from the Geneva Hospital System in Switzerland, where he has superb mentorship. Dr. Olivier, it's a pleasure to see you. Hi, Vina. It's a real pleasure to be here in the plenary se session. You know, I'm a real planner from the beginning, so to be here in the other side, it's really great. That's great to hear. You're a true planner. You've been following since the inception of the podcast, absolutely, is that right? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And you're also an oncologist, is that right? Absolutely, practicing oncologist in Geneva University Hospital. And who is the chief there? It's an excellent chief. Yeah, absolutely. Professor Dietrich is the chief there, and um, he's a really uh, a great person. So I, I take profit to, to thank him now. Because I, yeah. He's not the only one. I mean, it's it's really good group you've got there in Geneva. Yeah, there's a lot of people there that are really great, supportive, and uh, it's a great team to be to be there. And I can't wait to someday visit you all. Absolutely, you are always invited. I don't know about that. Know. I don't know if I've been always invited because I thought I was supposed to be, but it didn't work okay, out. But okay, okay. Well, but know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come. I don't come. know either. I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> I'm gonna come. I'm gonna come. Okay, you're also a member of the VK Prasad Laboratory, is that Absolutely right? Absolutely a member of the VK Prasad. Also since the beginning. Since the beginning, and uh, like all laboratories, if you go to our website www.vkprasadlab.com, you'll see many pictures of what we do, which is pipetting. <laughs> Absolutely, I saw on Twitter there is some discussion about what is a lab. So it's not a wet lab, but it's a lab. It's a lab. <laughs> I see that they got they they don't realize that uh, the entire website was a bit of a joke. But that's okay. That's okay. It's uh, it's it's done the trick. It's gotten under people's skin. But okay, a lot of people call their groups labs. It's, we're not the only ones. A lot of people. I see a lot of people Absolutely. doing non wet lab work. Yeah. We are here to talk about your recent publications. That mm. we're here to do. We're also here to give. I think this might be a new installment on the show, the VK Prasad Lab update. That's what oh, I'm thinking. Oh, that's good. That's good. Isn't it many, good? Many people are asking for that kind of stuff, so yeah. about our papers. and uh, They're not... I think, I think it's timely. It's timely. They're not saying, don't talk about COVID. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, could, they could say it. I, I, don't, I don't know. They could say that. They could be saying Sometimes. Sometime. They could be saying that. So, Dr. Olivier, let me pull up my little list here. But I think the first thing we need to talk about as a paper you published, JAMA Network Open. Just came out a few weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. Physician Choice. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I both read these randomized control trials in oncology, and they so often say, we're going to compare our new standard of care regimen against physician choice. That yeah. means anything the physician wants to choose. Is that right? Anything at all. You want to choose it. It's your choice. Yeah, that's I the, think that's it. that the first uh, thought you have when you see this kind of physician choice or investigator choice, you, you, you think, you first think, oh, that's good. It's a free choice. It's a free choice, and um, we'll go deeper in that. And we'll go actually, deeper. actually, when you when you look at a recent paper in the New England, I think every one week or every other week there is a paper with this kind of physician physician choice. So it's very very common. It's very common. And you know, the other day we went out to lunch, and you said, you know what, this one's on me. You can order whatever you want. And I said, great. I'm going to order the lobster. He said, well, not that one. <laughs> not, not that, actually. It was an unfettered choice. It was an unfettered Could I really order any? No. So this is what we're going to come to. Yeah. Because it's really important because in many tumor types, there is something that people want to do that is better than other options. Um, and, and yet these trials compare against physician choice, and they often restrict physician choice. So here's your paper. Oncology. JAMA Network Open, January 21st, 2022. Timothy Olivier, Allison Haslam, who works on the team, and myself. Oh. Reporting of physicians or investigators' choice in randomized clinical trials in oncology. And I encourage people to take a look at this. So what did you do here, Timothy? You, so, you looked through yeah, a lot of studies, it looks I, like. I mean, we, we looked to every study reporting, um, talking about physician choice or investigator choice. And our inclusion criteria where the study had, had to be randomized clinical trials, mm -hmm. Um, have to be oncology related, and so we selected trials to that r were referring the control arm as an in investigator choice or physician choice. I see. And you are tracking a few things. Number one, over time, there's an increase in the number of these studies. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. The finding, um, the first paper came out on. Tw um, 2007, 2007, mm -hmm. there were two publications, mm -hmm. and it's really increasing over time. There are 12 publications in 2020. So you can really see on the figure that there is a stepwise increase. Mm -hmm. So it's very common. So our feeling 
has been confirmed by our findings. Mm -hmm. You say there are 82 industry-sponsored trials and 10 non-profit or not-for-profit-sponsored trials. So the industry loves to l run this agenda. Absolutely. It's mostly industry-funded trials, and it's mostly also, you will come to that, restricted choice. Okay, so here's what you say. Among the 82 industry-sponsored trials, 71, 77%. It wasn't a physician choice. It was a restricted choice. Yeah, I think this is um, also this is a, a marketing strategy, the illusory of choice. You, mm -hmm. you think you mm -hmm. have a full choice, but actually your choice is a, a bit, we can say, manipulated. You you are, you are not you have not a, f a free and full choice. Just like when we went to lunch that day, and I couldn't eat the lobster. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 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 actually, what we can find when you go deeper and yeah. you take one by one study, yeah. you can see that this res restriction very often prevents you to choose sometimes very highly, highly effective, effective drugs. Let's talk about Sakituzumab Govitiken. Yeah. Sakituzumab Govitiken. Yeah. Rolls right off the tongue. Good drug or great drug? Um, it's not me to say. I mean, it's <laughs> a highly active drug. That's uh, no doubt about uh, it. But um, we gave this example in the paper, and we published a specific trial on Sakituzumab Govitiken, mm -hmm. the ASCENT trial. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is a, a, vi a very good example about the physician choice that is restricted and that prevents you to choose some very active drugs. Now uh, tell me, so it's sacituzumab govitikan. These are patients with brain metastases who have progressed, the triple negative cancer, triple negative breast cancer patients, and they progressed, and they are being allowed to go take the investigator drug, which is sacituzumab govitikan, or the control, investigator choice. But what does the control exclude? So main, the, the main concerns were about two drugs that were not in this uh, physician choice that were platinum-based chemotherapy mm. and anthracycline. Mm. And so these patients were refractory. So we can suppose that maybe they already received those drugs, mm -hmm. but that was not, not the case for platinum-based chemotherapy in 31% of them. Mm -hmm. And that was not the case for anthracycline in 17% of them. I see. So you have a significant proportion of patients that did not, um, were not allowed to receive these highly active drugs in that setting. Now, to be fair, you don't know for sure platinum-based therapy is the best drug for those no, patients. No, no, absolutely. You don't know. You'll concede to me. You don't yeah, know for sure. We don't know for sure, but, but we know that yes. some physician will Feel that. maybe want to have this choice yeah. for some patients. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the other thing yes. that you can see on this paper yes. that is... Um, a kind of surrogate of this kind of yes. poor control arm is that there is a high rate of patient initially dropping from the control arm, four, ah. 14 patients. So after the randomization, it's an op open label design. Yes, they know they're getting some, yes. And I think in some countries where the physicians know that he can give other drugs, yes. and when he know that the patient is not on the experimental arm, yes. he will maybe consult his patients to be treated outside the trial. That's a great point. And that's a paper that I want to steer people to, the paper I did with Kate Rosen, Emerson Chen, which is a paper we published in the European Journal of Cancer on censoring in randomized controlled trials in oncology. And what we find is exactly as you say, that there is a slight bias early after randomization for dropout on the control arm rather than the intervention arm. And that's because people sniff out, they're getting the short shrift. They're getting an inferior therapy. You made a, a video about the vision trial. It was... Uh, yeah obvious in this one in That's the prostate right. cancer so i think this is a, a thing you can look at when you, you you suspect this kind of thing how many patients did drop out after randomization the vision trial um uh lutetia yeah, psma yeah. and the control arm it was something i'd never seen before it wasn't it like 50 percent and it went down to 60 yeah. percent and, and, and there were kind of um um the investigators did a, an action to correct that. Yeah, they yeah. did brainwashing. I call it brainwashing. A lot of people watch my videos on this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some even type them up. Okay, so um, uh, um, this is an important point, the unrestricted choice. You yeah. know what I think they do? They're doing it because you, you don't, it, it's something that's harder to put your finger on. Absolutely. It's a type of trial manipulation. It's hard to put your finger on it. Absolutely. I think the point is, look, I mean, Substandard control arm, you, you made a great uh, paper with Talali Lal um, mm -hmm. showing that it's a, a issue. Yeah, yeah. 17% uh, of, of clinical trials for, had, for, for registration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Had a substandard control arm, yeah.
the point I wanted to make is um, sometimes it's very obvious. You, you can really f see obviously that it's a substandard control arm. But in this kind of study, sometimes it's not so obvious. You say, okay, we have four choices. So it's it's a good choice to have four choices. Mm -hmm. And actually what we, what we raise here is that two very important drugs were not allowed, and um, that's concerning. That's concerning, and I think it's reflected in the fact that that's why there's dropout. I think you're, I think you're onto something. You know, that's the thing about uh, these trials. They every year I figure out new ways they fooled me, and then they find new ways to fool me yet again. They're always running faster than us, Timothy. We, <laughs> um, I think you're right. <laughs> um, uh, uh, th there's another. Yeah. Uh, we we can say there's another other point we we made for this specific trial that yes. uh, was. Um, also pushing the experimental arm in a way that is very subtle and not so easy to find. The growth factor. The growth factor, yeah, absolutely. Let, we'll come to that in one second. Okay. But I want to talk about that paper, but I want to just conclude with this, on this choice. Um, yes, Talal Hilal and myself, we published on control arm quality and randomized control trials, general oncology. Then with Mani Moyudin, we did it again on the myeloma trials. Absolutely, we found this, yeah. we recapitulated the central finding, which is that often these trials are using control arms beneath the U.S. standard of care. That's a problem because they're not seeking market share elsewhere. They're seeking market share in the U.S., and that's why it's a problem. But you have extended that in the new paper, JAMA Network Open, reporting a physician or investigator choice in treatment and oncology randomized control trials. And you've extended it in an important way. You conclude with this line, I'll take your, I'll take your impression of it. You say, quote, through imprecise wording, potentially masking substandard control groups, phys treating physicians may inaccurately think that the reported results can generalize to their patients, whereas this may not be true. Our findings suggest that editors and regulators should demand clarification in the use of these terms within RCT protocols and reports. They shouldn't let them say investigator stories. They should have to say a restricted, a restricted choice. I couldn't eat that lobster. Abs absolutely. I think the, the point we know that many, many, Physicians, they don't have the time to read all the paper and they will sometimes, it's sad, but it's a reality and, and they will rely on the abstract and they will rely on uh, press release and things like that. And, and so when you see physician choice, your first thought is it's really, it's really a good control arm. Mm -hmm. But actually... It's not always. No. I actually think that the New England Journal of Medicine has permitted this deception and they need to crack down on it. It's a deception, and it needs to be cracked down on. And I think you're right. Most physicians who are practicing are, first of all, I always say this, and, I'll st and you don't have to take the heat for this. I'll take the heat for this. The majority of physicians practicing do not read the papers. You're, you're not saying anything. The majority of physicians practicing, I'm, I'll take the, all the responsibility for the next few comments. The majority of physicians practicing don't read the papers. I'll go further. Some people say, well, you know, they don't have time to read the abstract. They don't, they're not reading the abstracts. They're not reading the abstracts. I'm pretty sure... I know very few people who read all the abstracts. Here's what they're doing. They're hearing what other people are saying that the abstract said. That's the level that we're operating under. And that's true for COVID-19, which we're not talking about, but it's true for that. I mean, they're not reading those papers either, yet they have strong opinions. It's also true in oncology. They're not reading those papers. They're not reading those papers. And so being able for the company to be able to say, we did our drug against investigator choice you assume it would be an unfettered choice, it's, just like I assumed I could have eaten the lobster that day. It's, it's misleading. misleading. Oh, yeah. it's Let's push on this trial more. This is in translational oncology. This is by Timothy Olivier et al. I'll be the et al. here. Okay. Sacituzumab govitecan in, in metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Four design features in the ascent trial potentially favor the experimental arm. People who haven't seen this paper need to look at the figure. It's a brilliant figure. And you, in this article, you are saying there are four things in this trial. You've already named one. Let's go through the other three. Four things in the ascent trial that lead to, there's a 6.7 month to 12 month benefit. One of those things might be the drug works, but there are four other reasons why that might be. Yeah. The first thing is a kind of reminder that is very, um, common also in oncology trials is the open label design because we know that this kind of design can influence the way the patient is um, treated and this can favor the experimental arm. I won't be too, too uh, maybe I, I will go to the other point. Uh, okay, but let me push on this a little bit. I think you're okay. right and I think one of the things is, you know, when you have open label, you're going to press on the gas pedal for the drug that you care about and you're not going to pump the gas as hard on the other drug. Simple as that. And you're about to name one way. Let's do the GCSF. The GCSF. Now, you have this figure. This blew my mind. This is number two, um, which is that mandatory GCSF. Let's talk about GCSF. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point because actually you have to go in the protocol because if you go into the supplementary appendix, it's not, it's not there. reported not here. there. But when you go in the, in the protocol, you will see that 
you take fibril neutropenia mm -hmm. first episode mm -hmm. if you have that in the sensitive microvitrican arm you stay on the same dose and you receive mandatory GCSF. Okay. Okay. That's so nice. You're pushing. Okay. You're pushing so the drug. So okay. You're pushing the drug. If you are in the experimental, uh, in the control arm, sorry, yes. the physician choice control arm. Yes. You have a first. First, yeah, same episode. F first, uh, so after the first episode, you will have a reduction of the dose, and GCSF will be at discretion of the physician. It's it's not mandatory. Mm. So if you s you have this subtle difference, but it's clearly pushing the experimental arm. And in this trial, you have more than 50% um, of grade 3, 4 neutropenia. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting is that the labels, FDA labels, are not pushing the drug like in the protocol. So mm. patient, I, 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 I'm not saying it's wrong. It's uh, They made this decision based mm -hmm. on the data there, mm -hmm. the safety data there. Mm -hmm. But but it's not reported clearly and the patient in the real life won't be treated according to the same rules as in the protocol. Though, this is interesting. Okay, okay. So let me give listeners a little bit of background here. For many years, and you know this, since 2014, since I did that paper with FOHO, I have been very interested in very interested in the issue of drug dosing because it's not just the starting dose that's important in oncology clinical trials. In many clinical trials in oncology, between 30 to 50% of people end up on a dose that's not the dose they started with. They're on a lower dose. So the differences in dose step size really matters. And that's what we wrote about in the JCO, oral anti-cancer drugs, why dose reductions and, and uh, this, uh, may affect efficacy. This, this paper is really brilliant. I, I encourage our listeners to, to read it. I'll pay you later for saying that. This yeah. is another way where the control arm can be substandard. Yes. It's very subtle. I, I mean, this is, not, again, another point to, to make for control arms. Yeah, you're right. And, um, and, I, and I also want to credit the person who, who, who put me on the scent, uh, and Antonio Tito Fojo. Tito Fojo, visionary, truly a visionary in oncology, Columbia University. He's always been ahead of the curve. He's one of those guys who thinks four steps ahead of you, and then he has to, you know, try to explain his thought process to you. And, and I think sometimes, you know, that that's that's the that's the part that uh, that needs some help. But um, this is where where we picked up on this. That's where I was drawn to this idea. And we had trials like Axis, Exitinib, Exitinib versus Serafinib in second line back then, second line RCC, Exitinib. Every time you went down on the dose, it was a shorter drop than on serafinib. In addition to, if you were tolerating it fine, you could crank up the dose. And exitinib, you could push the hypertension more, give more antihypertensives. Absolutely. And that same thing happened in sacituzumab govitigan. Yeah. You can push sacituzumab govitigan with mandatory GCSF, which means you're going to get more drug. You're going to push that side harder than you're pushing the control arm where it is an option, but it ain't mandatory. That's not fair, Timothy. Yeah, I mean you are pushing, you are allowing to more dose intensity, and this is um, this is uh, the same mechanism of cytotoxic chemotherapy because it's a um, antibody with a cytotoxic uh, part is uh, SN38, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so you are allowing for more dose intensity. Absolutely, it's not fair. It's not, not fair. fair. Not fair. I hear a little bit of a distant sound on my microphone. It sounds like someone's playing music. I think that's radio interference. It's possible, yeah. It's possible. If yeah. We're, not, we're not playing music. You're not yeah. playing music, yeah. I'm not playing no, music. No. All right, but if listeners don't like that, you can send your complaints to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com if you don't like the, if you hear music in the background. But I think maybe I'm only hearing it on my headphones. We'll learn later. Okay, back to this paper. Sacituzumab govitikin. Now, you've outlined. There are four design features. Now, you know, one of the things is that the drug may actually be a better drug than other drugs. So I'll concede that. That might be the case. But the whole point of randomized controlled trials is to prove to me that that's the case. But now, that's possibility A. Possibility B, open labor design is a little bit of a bias. Possibility C, the control arm is not a true physician choice. It's, an, it's, a, it's a restricted choice. Restricted choice. Possibility um, four, the dose reduction imbalance. These different rules. The, there is another point. Um, yes. That was a choice of PFS as an endpoint. Oh and, and the trial was stopped early because of early stopping rules. So let's talk about, let's do yeah. the early stopping first. Early stopping. Yeah. Why do I care about early stopping? So there is this uh, very famous paper Montori. by Vic, yeah, 2005, Victor Montori Jam. I read Jam your mind. Yeah. I read your mind. I read my mind. I read you your read mind. mind. <laughs> There's okay. also a great paper okay. in 20, 2012 by Zhang in CCR. It's also a nice paper. We cited both in the paper. So this um, is it, it's a kind of statistical consideration, but mm -hmm. this can amplify the benefit of um, of the drug. 
and the PFS is more prone to this bias than overall survival. Mm. So, and the second question is why to choose PFS in that setting of uh, triple negative breast cancer after? Uh, we'll come, to, we'll yeah. come to that. Let's just talk about the early stopping. I think you're right. Early stopping. I don't know if people realize, but when things stop early, on average, the effect size is exaggerated. Uh, it had to be that way. That's just the nature of statistics. It would always be that way. And then if, if it ran further, you'd get regression to the mean, which would be the true effect size. That ain't going to be zero. It's likely to be something. But it does mean when you stopped early, it was likely to be an overshot. Uh, overshot estimate of the actual efficacy. And if we reran this trial a thousand times, which we'll never do, we're lucky to run a trial once in this country, in this time. We used to run them twice. Uh, we're lucky to run them once. But if you ran a thousand times, you would find that the true effect, that the same exact trial, even with all the other flaws, it would be a smaller effect. Now, hit me with PFS. PFS, it's obviously a measure of what matters to patients, when you say, Timothy? Um, I think you quote, I don't know if I can quote, but um, uh, who, who said that? But the PFS is actually the endpoint that um, will matter to the patient as soon as you talk about. Yeah, yeah. Something yeah. like that. Maybe yes, you yes. can rephrase it. A surrogate endpoint is an endpoint that, um, that the patient uh, thinks is important only after the doctor teaches them it's important. Um, I know there are many debates about that, but uh, I think the important thing is to remind that PFS is a composite endpoint. Yes. It's not a clinical endpoint. The, 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 the clinical endpoint are overall survival and, and quality of life. Um, so, and the other thing is, what is the justification to choose PFS in that kind of setting? And, let's, and you're saying that because OS is short. Absolutely. OS is short. Absolutely. You don't have to wait. You, you wait much longer. It's coming. You'll find the OS out. And maybe you can speak about your paper with Emerson Chen yes. when you study that that uh, topic about... That's a good point. Yeah. So what we did there was... So, I mean, I, I think one of the points Timothy's making I think is a good point that I want to restate, which is that progression-free survival is a composite time to event endpoint. It's a time until one of four things happen. One, the patient dies, there's new lesions on scan. Three, the tumors get 20% bigger. Or, the for number four, the tumors get 20% bigger than the smallest they ever were if they were to have shrunk and whichever comes first. But of course, that 20% is arbitrary. It's a line in the sand. Nobody walks around and says, I feel fine at 119%, and the 121, oh, I feel terrible. No, it's arbitrary. And for that reason, it is not a direct measure of how patients feel or function. It is a surrogate for those things. And as long as it's that, it is dubious. It's also very prone to censoring bias. We're going to talk about your Absolutely. next paper. You're going to talk about that. And it's also very prone to exaggeration from early stopping, as you point out. It's ripe for it. Okay, having said that, why do people use it? Purportedly. Of course, I know why they use it, Timothy. I'll be honest with you. This is a podcast. I'll finally be honest. They use it because you're more likely to win. You use it because you're going to get the win. That's why you do it. Absolutely. Nobody cares anything uh, other than a win. Absolutely. And also, the surrogacy of PFS for OS is uh, poor. It's in, garbage. Yeah. I mean, in many tumors. In many tumors. And what, mean, what yeah. he means by that is that, that if you knew a drug improved PFS... Do you then know it would have improved OS? And the answer is no, because your R-squared coefficient is 0.3 in this disease. It's 0 0.3, 0 0.3, 0 0.4. It tells you very little bit of the variability in OS change from the variability of PFS change. That's one point. The next point is this point about speed. The companies tell you we're using PFS because we want to accelerate the drug to market. We're not doing it just to get a cheap win. They tell you that. Well, Emerson Chen and I, Emerson Chen from OHSU, assistant professor there, and I, we published in JAMA Internal Medicine a mathematical model that tried to estimate how much speed you're getting. And I do concede, I'll concede to you all, that there is some speed in frontline th settings. That speed is marginal. It's 11% of the drug development time. You know, it's, a, it's, it's 11 months or 11, I think 11%, you Ele know, on an eight-year eight timeline. Month, yeah. 11 months, something like that. It's modest. But in the latter lines, it is zero. Timothy's read the table. See, Timothy's a person who reads papers. You actually know this. Yeah, yeah. This is a good paper also, but uh, I don't want to say to people to read too much paper. I think <laughs> one is good. Yeah, one <laughs> a month. I, I always, you know, I, you, yeah, I always give this, I always say one a month. If you read one a month, you're better than 99% of people. All right, so those are the, those are the flaws in Sakatuzumab govitin Yeah, and the, the final question is, yes. what is the magnitude of benefit when you will apply this drug with, um, drug modification, uh, uh, modification rules that are different <coughs> as compared to the protocol with a control arm that is not uh, restricted and all, all these questions we don't, we don't have in this, with this trial. So there is, this is a drug that is, uh, uh, that is active, there's no doubt about it, but Trias um, is raising these concerns. And by active, Timothy means that it can shrink, it, it shrinks tumors. 
Activity is shrinking tumors. Efficacy is living longer, living better. Efficacy is living longer, living better. Okay, next paper. Timothy Olivier et al. This is Translational Oncology. You're back again. We have actually read a column for them. It's called The Approval and Withdrawal of Melphalan Flufenamide or Melflufen. Melflufen. Mm-hmm. Implications for the state of the FDA. The first point I want to make is that if you were thinking, how do I make a molecule that's going to be successful in multiple myeloma? You look at melphalan and then you say, let me just add something to the side. Let me add a little side group. And you have a nice figure, figure two, which is the chemical structure of melphalan and melflufen. Melflufen, is that right? That's a nice melflufen, picture. Melflufen, absolutely. And, and it does look different to me. What's that on the end? That's some doohickey. That's uh, um, a peptide conjugate uh, added on melphalan. Makes it better, doesn't it? That's w- what we are talking about. I mean, yeah. About. But I guess to make to, if it would make it better, you'd need a randomized trial comparing the two. It was interesting because melphalan was approved first in 1964. 64. 64. I thought it was 60. Okay. So in other words, a while back. So you, you, we will go through this paper. Okay. Yeah. But I, I want to say this about yeah. melphalan. Yeah. Um, I think it still might be the most active drug in myeloma. Okay. I don't know. People will. Uh, listeners. Okay. A little bit of a challenge. Send me your arguments. Okay. Here on plenary session. I'm going to say for the record. The single most active drug, by that I mean doth shrink at the cancer, is melphalan. The alkylator, the dirty alkylator melphalan. Monty, if you're listening, if anyone's listening in myeloma space, you tell me if I'm wrong. You think, do you think the CAR-Ts are better, my friend? Well, I'll tell you something. 200 milligrams per meter squared of melphalan, okay? Can anyone beat that? Can anyone beat that? Maybe you're, talk- you're going to cite me some MRD thing. Okay, write to me. But, but there is, we can crank this up in a way. Can anything surpass a Auto? Okay, tell me. Tell me if, I, if I'm wrong. Is there anything more active? This is a question about activity, not efficacy. So put, don't, don't sa- save me your cross-comparison OS. Okay, back to this. Now, melphalan's been around a long time. We've been doing melphalan a long time. Okay, we can debate the dose you want to do it. Um, something interesting happened. A company got into the business. They got into the melflufen business. And melflufen came to the market based on that very important, that very important clinical endpoint of an uncontrolled response rate in a single arm study. <laughs> so what was the response rate of melflufen in the trial that led to the U.S. regulatory approval? I think it was 23%. 23%, yeah, yeah. yeah. And was it with dexamethasone or by itself? Uh, with, with dexamethasone, with dex- okay. I think. So you have to I'll pull that check. up. Yeah, I'll check that while you're talking. So, um, you know, I don't know. We have so many drugs in myeloma. I think, frankly, we don't need to approve any more drugs based on response rate. We can just do randomized controlled trials and get on with it. Um, it came to the market, of course. Yet then they did do a randomized control trial, the Ocean Study. Absolutely. And it randomized people to melflufen or pomalidomide, pomdex. Absolutely. Okay. What do you think about that control arm? I see in your little commentary. Yeah, you're critical. that control arm. Um, so we we can debate about the dates of enrollment of the trial, but we know we now know that triplet would have been better here. The other point we raised is that um, very few patients was exposed to daratumumab before enrolling, um, and more than 50% of the patient had received three or more lines of therapy, hmm. and less than 20% of patients did receive an anti-CD38 treatment. That's not good. So that's not good. And that's there not were not good. So, so basically what we are saying is that being enrolled on this trial may have prevent or delay the access to... Dara, um, yeah. which is a life-saving drug. I think. Daratumumab, which is anti-CD38 anti-CD38 antibody. And the other one is isotuximab, which is a Me Too Daratumumab, which I don't know. It's a, Monty had a nice little uh, jab about it. But, you know, Dara is, Dara is a good drug. Dara has a legitimate single-agent response rate. Dara has multiple randomized control trials in the relapse refractory setting showing PFS and, and dare I say, OS benefit. Um, DARA is, in fact, I think for many of us, our de facto second-line choices, some DARA, DARA-containing regimen, dara velcade dex DARA-Revlimid-Dex, et cetera. DARA is a standard of care therapy. Now, you mean to tell me, somebody has gotten three lines of therapy at the time this trial was run, and they never met DARA? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I'll accept it. But then what you do... Is POM. You give them POM, and you still don't give them DARA. Absolutely. You and, still and don't give them DARA. And they are refractory to another IMID, so this is another point we made there. This is not good. And explain it a little bit more. So why why does that trouble you, that, they're, um, that, they're, they're, that they would do better, I think, if they weren't in the control arm? That's what you're saying. Yeah. Aaron Goodman told me that the OCEAN trial is a rare example of a randomized control trial where both 
the treatment and the intervention arm were inferior to standard of care therapy because the the real standard of care would have been a triplet. Uh, yeah, and w what is um, interesting in that trial that they they have an excess mortality, and this led to uh, an, an alert by the FDA in July, and so the um, melphefen has been uh, withdrawn from uh, from marketing authorization in the US based on that uh, mortality excess. The so, overall survival so, data should have yeah. 5.2 months shorter median OS in the melflufen group compared to the palm group. Hazard ratio 1.1, 95% confidence interval 0.85 to 1.44. It's not significant, so, though. So, it's yeah, not significant. But, no, of course, that but, doesn't come because we don't run the trial. Despite yes. the control arm being yes. substandard, let's say that. There yes. were that. I want to say two points here. One, people always say that, well, you know, it didn't statistically significantly increase death. You know, people are halting. You know, when people are, when things aren't going the right direction, they don't run them into run the run the car into the ground. They they halt the trial. Okay, so that's one of the things you need to know. That's a difference between a superiority and and being halted for trending to death. Okay, that's one. Two, this ain't good. I mean, this is an inferior hazard ratio against a straw man control arm. Absolutely. If you had gone up against a real control arm, you'd be in the toilet. And there, we're not. I think people forget these are these are human beings who are being their lives are being shortened by being participating in this trial. Very concerning. Very concerning. I don't know what to say. And then they withdrew the drug eight months after it was approved. Yeah. And so this is also so in in our paper we raised the um, the question about the FDA because why to make an accelerated approval in February when you will have the data in a few months few months later yeah. and it's not an unmet need you have as you said you have a lot of drugs in that space so there's no really in our in our opinion there's no real justification to go to accelerated approval no because you will have the data soon so this was a point we raised yeah eight months what are you what are you doing what are you doing why why are you you're uh, the 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 answer is imminent and there is no unmet need because one, the people in this study, they can be getting Dara triplets. They're already, you know, they, there are other things you can be giving them. That's one. Two, there's so many trials in myeloma. Patient can enroll on many, 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 many studies. And there's so many drugs and so many combinations. These myeloma doctors, they don't even know which is the optimal sequence. They're not even working on that problem. They got so they have an abundance of riches. They don't know the right sequence beyond initial therapy with RVD. And and if anyone listening to this dare say anything else, feel free to write to the show because I don't believe you, but you can try to persuade me. But RVD is the initial standard of care, in my opinion, for the vast majority of people with myeloma. I would maybe even say you still have to prove to me even in the high-risk subtypes. That's one point. The next point I'd say is that the second-line therapy is entirely unsettled. You've run so many trials with so many inferior control arms, doublet control arms, even though you knew better and you would never have treated a patient outside of your control trial with a doublet control arm. But you ran so many of these trials, we have no idea whether it's KRD or DRD or DVD or whatever. You have no idea what the best second line choice is and you have no idea the third or fourth and you're not making much progress when I look at your trials agenda. As far as I can tell, when I look at myeloma trials agenda, your only goal is to start to slip people some belantamab for their MGUS. I mean, that's the only goal. The only goal is trying to slip you some Dara for your MGUS. They're not, they're not working on sorting out the optimal sequence for people with real rip-roaring myeloma. And while this is going on, you're approving melflufen, melflufen, based on the ocean trial, which as you put, Timothy, belongs in the Bermuda Triangle. No, I put a, a nice ocean uh, picture on the, on the paper you can check. A nice ocean, oceanographic portrait. Yeah. Um, so they're approving this trial and eight months later, they have to eat crow because it's actually a lethal drug. It's increased mortality. Eight months later, what? Why? What are you doing at FDA? And even even earlier, because the the FDA made the alert in July, so February accelerated approval, and July they had the results. No, in July they made this uh, alert. Oh, the alert was in July. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. wow. I mean, if the regulators are going to be this bad, they have to switch and join the uh, vaccine products and work for boosters. <laughs> Boosting the youth. I mean, at least they had a few of them had the dignity to resign. But I mean, come on, this is terrible. <laughs> Sorry, Timothy's not commenting. This is only me saying. But yeah, you know, this is the same. I mean, I, I, I just make this point that I want to crystallize the point of my joke. The point of my joke is that it's an appetite for risk that's delusional. You know, when you want to recommend boosters for 12 year old boys and you want to recommend this drug, even though a few months later, four months later, you're going to get the answer. It, it suggests an appetite for, rich, for, for risk 
that doesn't make any sense. In both cases, you can run a proper study and get the answer and then make a decision. You don't need to make a decision based on imperfect data because you're not facing a substantive unmet need. And if you think you are, then you're already making a mistake because you don't know how to understand or conceptualize risk. Okay, back to myeloma. We're not talking about COVID anymore. Um, but I do think there are some similarities. Um, you say four problems. Oh, you did. I didn't even notice the background is an ocean. Absolutely. Yeah, this is the, this is the Bermuda Triangle. Okay, number one. Substandard control arm. The negative results in ocean occurred despite this bias. Yeah, that's not so good. Number two, new compound derived from a parent drug and still gets accelerated path. Oh, let's talk about that. Yeah, it's I a, think it's a novel it, alkylator. I, I think here <laughs> yeah, there's a it's a it's a more maybe more broad question. You have a lot of drugs that are derived from all the compound. We know that with the NABs. We know that with other other drugs. And yeah. the question is, when you have a cheaper drug, yes, with uh, uh, years or sometimes decades of, yes. of safety data. Yes. Shouldn't you have to prove that your drug is better than the older one? Liposomal irenotecan. For instance? Albumin-bound paclitaxel. What else do we got? Liposomal doxorubicin. What else do we got? Nabsarolimus. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Nanoparticle albumin-bound serolimus? <laughs> oh, that's a real drug. Don't, that's a real drug. More to come, more to come. But yeah, you, you don't you think you have, I mean, you're just repackaging think, an I old gift. He, I think here, it's really a question I, I, I ask. Shouldn't we ask, in these cases, yes. shouldn't we ask the manufacturer to prove that the new drug is better than the old? At least. At least. At least. At least. At least that. And then ideally better than what doctors would actually do, but at least better than melflufin, which I, to be honest, I, I, I doubt that. I, I think, melf, mel, I mean, melphalin, melflufin, I think, um, I just can't imagine that it'll ever be, in a, if they actually did a proper head-to-head -head study where you had a little bit of flexibility in your dosing, I just, mel, melphalin, if you just crank up the dose, is very active, so I doubt this will be better in any way, shape, or form. Anyway, it's off the market now. Um, you know, it's not good. It's not good. We write this, quote, the philosophical core of the accelerated approval pathway is that accepting a surrogate endpoint is only reasonably likely to predict living longer, living better. It speeds a drug to market, but in the case of melflufin, robust results lagged by eight months. Actually, we were wrong. It's actually even shorter than eight months. Yeah. In the example of nivolumab for small cell lung cancer, confirmatory trials lagged by eight weeks. Yeah, that was another fiasco. Nivolumab receiving accelerated approval in extended stage small cell lung cancer. Only eight weeks later, our, our, our confirmatory study has failed. What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Quote, if accelerated approvals come with sizable uncertainty and confirmatory studies are imminent, should they be granted? That's a good question. Thoughts? Oh, I think you went through the main ideas. Okay. Let's go to my list of papers. So these are our papers in 2022, the ones we've done. Should we go back and do 2021? Mm-hmm. 2021. Now, I have another paper out on the parachute analogy. Did you see that paper? Oh, t t yeah. That's with Alex. It's a good one. Alex Shu, yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. Please. All right, I'll say, just a little quick plug. The use and meaning of the parachute metaphor in biomedicine, a citation analysis of a systematic review of a randomized trial of the parachute for free fall. So basically, you know, Timothy will know this well, there are two seminal papers about parachutes in biomedicine. Number one. Uh, a paper in the BMJ in 2004, which says, hey, we looked for randomized control trials of parachutes for free fall. They ain't any. They ain't any. Ergo, the most ardent proponents of EBM should organize and participate in an RCT for parachutes. But of course, a parachute has a massive effect size, 99.99999 and change. Very big absolute risk reduction, which other things in biomedicine don't have. And we trace citations from that paper and another paper, a follow-up by my friend and colleague, Bobby Yeh, from the Beth Israel Deaconess. And there's a follow-up where he actually ran a randomized control trial of a parachute, but of course, everyone was scared to jump out of the plane without it, so they had to put the plane on the ground when they jumped, and it didn't work. So that's a, that's a knock on how sometimes randomized control trials get so perverted they don't actually answer the question you sought out to ask. We took both those papers, we traced the citations to it. We see who are all the people citing this and why are they citing this? And of course, many people are citing this in the era of COVID, it'll be no surprise. They're citing it to say that just like we don't need an RCT of the parachute, we don't need an RCT of masking this baby, of masking this toddler, masking this child. We don't need randomized trials. We just know it works. The effect size is massive. It would be ridiculous to test an RCT. But of course, the effect size of masking a child is not 99.9%. .9%. It's likely 
it's likely pretty close to 0%. Because actually, if you did a cloth mask in adults in Bangladesh, it was 0%. So I can't imagine it would be any higher with a child with less compliance. But anyway, it certainly is not 99.99%. certainly not in the ballpark where you preclude randomization. And yet they make that, they make that silly analogy over and over again. We also dug deeper. We dug, got into the weeds as to what specific practices are they analogizing? Are those random? Do, the, do those have randomized trials? We found two-thirds of them did. So that, that's interesting to me because if you analogize something to a parachute and two-thirds of the time somebody already done a randomized trial, well, I promise you one thing. It ain't no parachute because if it was a parachute, they wouldn't have done that study. You have contradicted yourself, my friend. And in those two-thirds times where there is an RCT, 50% of the time, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Your parachute's been tested in RCT. It doesn't work. You're calling it a parachute. You should be calling it melfluffin. It's a better analogy than melfluffin. It's not a parachute. Get out of here. You don't need, do people even know? You know, I know they don't. People don't know how to make analogies. Yeah, I think for me that paper was really interesting. And um, if we... If we go back uh, in history, for instance, in breast cancer, we, yeah. we see that there are all these debates of a trial being unethical. You can't run this trial, and yeah. you know, for Bernie instance, Fisher. Yeah, we, we we have all this story of of you know physicians fighting against them and say you can't run this trial. And finally, when the trial is run, and finally when yeah. the trial is run, yeah. Um, you have a reversal. You describe that. Yes. So um, I think this is um, really important to bear in mind that um, that ma many many times you have to run the trial, and many times it's not a parachute. History of medicine is a bunch of people sitting on the sidelines saying it would be unethical to study, only to have somebody run the randomized trial and find out it don't work at all. And that's what Bernie Fisher faced, and that's what you know we faced when we were talking about um, genome directed. Uh, 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 screening, this idea that everybody should get a foundation medicine that should be tested in a randomized trial. Uh, you know, I remember those were the sweet old days on the, on the internet. You know, when I said foundation medicine, before CMS drops $2 billion a year on everyone getting a, a foundation medicine test, we ought to run a randomized trial. I even decided the power calculation I published in the Annals of Oncology, saying what the sample size should be, and you can power for all-cause mortality, like by doing this test, do you improve outcomes? Uh, and of course, people were angry. They said it was a parachute, and they couldn't do the study, and blah, 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 blah. And those were the quaint old days. There's only about 15, 20 people who actually cared about the issue. Now, it's the exact same philosophical problem when it comes to you know, quarantines and testing and masking kids. And when it comes to, I think even uh, lots of things we're still doing in oncology. It's the same, it's just this, this ancient problem, which is people who believe in something don't want to study it because they have faith, it works. But that's the view of religious zealots and not the view of scientists. And you are, you are called unethical. I mean, yeah. and you can't do, but it's, the thing is, sometimes you are harming patients for years, for decades. And when you do the trial, then you have the answer. You know, I think in my mind, that's in such an important point. And the thing that I think all these people don't understand is they just don't understand. They don't understand that most things people have tried in medicine didn't work. And let me, let me expand on that a little bit. I mean, we have been, I don't know, in the, you know, we can debate prehistoric times, but let's just say in recorded history, the last 4,000 years, human beings have attempted likely a hundred million or a billion different things to improve their health from people ancient healers who would rub some plant on your leg if it was hurt or somebody who made you swallow a teaspoon of molasses or whatever. You know, we've been trying all sorts of things from cupping to acupuncture to this herb and that supplement and this bloodletting and that trepanation and this and that. And of the billion things we've ever tried, the vast majority didn't make anyone better. It probably just hurt them. It actually took their money, actually injured them. I mean, people died. George Washington is dead because they bloodlet him for pneumonia. You know, so it injured people. And then finally, in the 1940s, somebody had the wherewithal to realize that there's a very simple way to separate these things, the wheat from the chaff, and that's to run a bunch of randomized control trials. And then by the 1980s, I think we finally had some real examples where we learned that lesson painfully with the cardiac antiarrhythmic suppression trial and CAST and all the Bernie Fisher stuff and, 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 and then the classic um, ECOG study of RCHOP versus promesetabam versus, uh, versus, uh, versus uh, two other multidrug combination regimens. And we just learned that, like, wow, all these things people had faith in needed randomized control trials. But then fast forward 
the genome, I think, stepped us, you know, we stepped in on the genome because we thought, well, now we understand things at such a deep molecular level, randomization is no longer necessary, but of course it still is. And then the pandemic, you know, that's a classic. People are f afraid, they're scared, and when they're afraid and scared, they'd rather worship talisman than run randomized trials to figure out which of this stuff helps. And, you know, you can sympathize with that for three months, but when you get into two years, well, then naturally people are going to come and say, why are you continuing to do this to my child? Do you have any evidence? And then, you know, they're going to say, oh, sorry, we kind of we kind of dropped the ball there. So in my mind, that's why it's such a big problem. And I, I honestly, I've been working on this space for, I would say, probably a central theme of my career since I started working in ending a medical reversal to this is that what type of evidence do you need to justify interventions with mild to modest effect size? And the answer is you almost always need randomized trials, especially if they're onerous and costly and go on forever. And we need to do that. And yet no one has ever done that. And they still don't learn. And they're still saying the same excuses they said 20 years ago when I was starting. Uh, you know, I don't know what to say. All right. Back to, back to your papers. You're taking, taking the sidelines of this. You're a smart guy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> oh, what's this one? 2011, anti-cancer drugs approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Yeah. What's this? JAMA Network Open. Timothy Olivier, Allison Haslam, myself. What's this paper? So in this paper, we studied, we reviewed all FDA approvals um, between 2009 and 2020, mm -hmm. and we classified them by mechanism of action. Okay. So um, this was the the main goal was to study. Um, uh, if the drugs were approved based on a new mechanism of action yes. or if there were uh, a second approval yeah. or if it was uh, not a new mechanism of action. Okay. And and you you know you were the first one to draw this to my attention when you were working on this this clever distinction between novel in that indication and novel across all drugs. So why don't you expand on this? What is novel in that yeah. indication novel across yeah. all drugs? Yeah, for, for for instance, um if you have a, a PD-1 drug or anti-PD-L1 drug, the first to be approved in one tumor type, it can be um, it can be classified as a new mechanism of action mm -hmm. in that tumor type. And if it's approved in another tumor type, then you can again classify it as a new mechanism of action in this new tumor type. So Give the Pembro example. So we yeah. made this example, uh, we made this classification, we made both classification. We made within tumor types and we made broadly. Mm -hmm. So broadly, you have your first anti-PD-1 and every other anti-PD-1 won't be a new mechanism of action. Mm -hmm. There will be second, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, me, too mm -hmm. me Too drugs. So give an example. So let's do the Pembro. Pembrolizumab. So if I recall, yeah. the first approval yeah. was metastatic so, melanoma. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then the first approval, then then subsequently there was a second line approval in non-small cell lung cancer. Absolutely. Okay. So with this example, yeah. so 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 Pembro, if you go by tumor type, then uh, you have two approvals with new mechanism of action. Yes. One in melanoma, one in in um, lung cancer. Okay. If you go broadly, yes. Just just the first one is classified as a new mechanism of action. Gotcha, okay. This one of melanoma. Okay, if so I then what you're yeah. saying is, but either way you slice it, the majority of new drugs that are being approved are completely novel. Yeah, I think the difference was interesting <laughs> no. because yeah, yeah. the difference was interesting because you can argue that um, in some tumor types you can have, uh, it's really um, a new way to treat. And I mean, both both classification were important. I but, see, okay, but, you're giving credit. But let, yeah. me, let me tell you, here's what I'm reading in your, in your paper. 322 drug approvals were included between 2009 and 2020. There was an increase in the total number of approvals from 8 to 57. 57 approvals in 2020, is that right, Timothy Olivier? Yeah, absolutely. So in other words, it was a great year for drug companies. I mean, patients. Drug com pa patients, drug companies, one, one of the other. We found that 209 approvals, 63%, were for a next-in-class indication in a new tumor type and 20, and, um, or a subsequent indication of the same drug in the same tumor type. Wait, unpack that for me. 209 approvals were for a next-in-class indication. What does that mean? So next-in-class means... Um, uh, me too. A me too drug, yeah. And then when considering each tumor type separately, 123 approvals, 37% were a new mechanism of action. So here we consider that the next Pembro in <coughs> another tumor types is a new 
I see. Mechanism of so, so what you're saying is that even if you let Pembro, every tumor Pembro's gone in, Absolutely. it gets a new, it gets like, you're, you're new, you're new, you're new. Only 37% of the drug approvals are new. Absolutely. The majority are not new. Absolutely. It's the same drug in the same tumor. The classic is they just move it up a line. You Absolutely. move it up a line. Actually, our paper was uh, published, I think, the same day or maybe the other day when there was this comment on the West, Wild West of checkpoint inhibitors in uh, commentary. Yeah, but but so, but Rick himself. Yeah, by but, uh, by, by yeah, Pastor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But so, uh, so but he's the one who created the, the situation. Okay. So what, what is he? I, I maybe, mean, maybe. I, I always see him. I always see him commenting about like, why is the FDA approving all these drugs? You, you, you created the marketplace with your incentives. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? You created all the incentives in the marketplace. They're responding to your incentives. Okay. So your point, even Rick Pazzer though has finally threw up his hands and said, "I'm sick of all these PD one drugs." Even Rick. But it, to be fair, the fact that he keeps approving like, you know, four of them, five of them in bladder cancer with the you know cookie cutter data, you know, I mean, he 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 created the he created the monster that he has to defeat. Is that the plot of Frankenstein? Mary Shelley's Frank. Have you read Mary Shelley's I'm Frankenstein? Not, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, it's been a while. I think I read it as a kid. But anyway, Frankenstein created the monster. I think the monster. Anyway, I, I don't know for sure. I haven't read in a long time. Maybe since I was, I was like 12 years old at the time. Okay. You conclude this, Timothy Olivier. I want you to take responsibility for this. Answer. In this study, approvals based on a new mechanism of action represented a minority of all approvals. Further consideration of incentives for drug development are needed to prioritize novel or highly innovative or transformative anti-cancer drugs. So how come you don't like Me Too drugs? What's wrong with a Me Too drug? The, the thing is, um, the thing is, uh, it's a bit like in the Melfrefen case. Um, is a Me Too drug uh, better than the older one? Is a Me Too drug cheaper than the older one? Uh, all these questions we don't have uh, because we have very rarely um, face-to-face, head-to-head comparison. Mm-hmm. So, and it doesn't allow to to lower the prices. It has been shown as well. Mm-hmm. So what is the advantage for patients to have Me Too drugs? What is the advantage? I think, the, here are the theoretical advantages, I think. Let me make the case for the Me Too drugs. Number one, there is a tiny fraction of people who are idiosyncratically intolerant to one drug and it benefits them to have other options. Okay. Now, however, in that, so what I would argue in that case is that yes, but then your randomized control trial could be people who are idiosyncratically intolerant to that drug and show me that the new drug is better than trying that drug again at a lower dose and trying to ramp it up, or even a third arm of like trying the other alternative. So, but those trials just don't exist. That's one possibility. The second possibility for somebody who progresses on one drug, there may be incomplete cross resistance to a different drug of that class. And so there's still a little bit benefit. But there again, there again, prove to me. That retreatment with the parent drug doesn't have the same response rate. It often might. It might. Because actually the clone that is sensitive has grown out with more time. Or you get some distance. You put something in between. And then you actually switch your, your clone. And you actually can go back to Imid if you haven't seen Imid in a while and still get a response. You know, that's, that, that sort of clonal dynamics happens a lot. And again, we don't have randomized trials like that. And then the other reason is the price reason. That drugs compete on price. And so it's great to have more options. But the problem with that is there is no instance in oncology. There is no instance in oncology where a branded drug has competed against another branded drug on price. Now, before you say Mark Cuban, that's not branded. That's generic. No, I think you made really good points here. And so sometimes I think it's really important to have another in-class drug. So this, uh, I fully agree. Uh, the other thing is um, all this is drug development. All these are trials. All these are patients, including trials. Right. So, so maybe we should focus uh, more, maybe less on Me Too drugs and more on novel mechanism of action drugs. That was, was one of the message of our paper. I fully agree. I fully agree. All right, so we have a few other papers to talk about, but I think we're going to do them in the next installment of the VK Prasad Lab experience. Perfect, perfect. Because I want to ask you a few questions for the listeners to get a sense of your, your background. So... We'll come back to it. We'll do another installment of these papers, and then I'm gonna have to, t- and then we'll talk about some papers that you didn't work on, but that you know you you're on the lab meetings. We have twice weekly lab meetings where, where we discuss a lot of these things. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. So, what what? Well, first of all, you're originally from France, but you live in Switzerland. Absolutely, I live in Switzerland. I work in Geneva. I have family in uh, Swiss, uh, in France, and in America. 
also. You so. also have American ties. Yeah, absolutely. And you're here for the year in University of California, San Francisco. You're uh, a visiting scholar. Absolutely. So I arrived here in November mm -hmm. and uh, we have great time. I'm learning a lot here with you and your team. And we, um, we do a lot of work. Absolutely. It's primarily work-related. Yeah, we don't go to lunch or anything like that. <laughs> so <laughs> now, now what drew your interest to this type of work? How did you get? How did you get? Yeah. How did you? How did we get to work together? So first, yeah. I think it's interesting because uh, I'm the first to make a lot of criticism about Twitter and social media. But um, I learned a lot uh, on Twitter, and I I found your work on Twitter and mm. and plenary session, and this was um, the way I I was interested in your works. Um, I think I send you a few emails um, yeah, initially, mm -hmm. but. Um, then the first paper we work about, um, I send you an email about an idea. Yeah. And you said it was a good idea. Yeah. And then we start working yeah. on that. It's a quality of life. We will talk about this. Yeah, uh, in, in the, the next, next installment. Uh, yeah. Next. So, um, but you took a long time to do that paper. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're right. It took like you're two right. years. You're not two years. One, one year, year. One year. One year. Um, but it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. Yeah. It was um, a bit complicated statistically. Yeah. You will find that. Yeah. Um, and so what drew my attention to this kind of research, I think it's uh, very related to the decision we make for our patient. This is one, one thing I really like in this research. So it's not, you know, far from the patient. I think... Um, because mo most of uh, our projects are related to one clinical question. I think having known you a little bit, I would say... There are a few things that draw you to this research. Let's see. One, this research is, I think, the strength is it's, it's analytical thinking. And I think it's, it's done rigorously. And if people, if anyone's listened to this long of the podcast, I think they'll agree. Because I think that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's what this thinking is. It's a, type of, it's a type of reasoning that's applied to the limit, which is what do you do if you take these principles to the conclusion? That's one. Two, it's patient-centered. Everyone talks some big patient-centered game, but I think they're full of it because, one, they're usually stuffing their pockets with drug company money or running drug company trials, which are not patient-centered. I don't – do people – are we under some delusion that these drug company trials are patient-centered? They are, in part, patient-centered. Insofar as it takes to bring a successful product to market that you have to improve the livelihood of people, yeah, it's patient-centered. But insofar as it, you can bring a product to market and get away with not improving people outcomes – it is not patient-centered. And that's why all these things we've talked about in this episode, you know, the physician choice, it's not an unfettered choice. The control arm, it's not a real control arm. GCSF is mandatory, but only for our drug, not your drug, you know? All of these choices are done to get a win. And a win means billions of dollars. And a loss means minus $775 million. So that win is worth it. And that is why that the, that the, 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 the vector of where drug companies are pointing and the vector of patient care is overlapping but misaligned. There's a little bit of deviation. And what we try to do is point out that deviation. So I think the third point is that it's extremely relevant for the patient you're seeing in clinic because if you know the pitfalls of, you know, melflufen, you know, you, you wouldn't have prescribed it. I mean, I don't think I actually, actually never prescribed melflufen. I, I think for some of the drugs we are criticizing or for, for some of the trials we are criticizing, that doesn't mean we won't never prescribe okay, these drugs. That's but, true. but we are more aware about the limitations about the space where we think it's more, you know, accurate to think about these drugs. So um, I think you, you delineate this distinction uh, previously in another episode between yes. your research, your point of view as a researcher about all the, um, all the issues we're raising, and your position as a clinician. Yes. When you have all the options and you want, I mean, obviously you want the best for, you, for your patient. So to make this distinction also, I think it's important. But our work is really uh, patient-centered, absolutely. And that's a good distinction because I will admit that there are many drug products that I thought were sort of inadequate that I still have utilized over the years because I think they are consistent with that particular patient's values and preferences in that moment and even sometimes are inconsistent with what I would have done for myself, but I've counseled them about all the facts and, and you know, they do so, you know, because the job of a doctor is not to treat everyone as if they were you, but treat everyone as if they were them, knowing what you know. I think that's the job of a doctor. That said, though, there are a few drugs I think we have, I have uh, totally avoided because I think uh, that they're just not justified at all. And some of them have subsequently withdrawn from the U.S. market, as in this case, melflufen, um, you know, withdrawn from the U.S. market. It's been, you know, proof that, eh, you know, people who leapt early in the melflufen bandwagon were doing some harm. Um, 
I think those are the key reasons. And I think that, um, and then that there's some fun to this. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's... You um, told me this the other day. Yeah, yeah, I told you that. I remember. Yeah. Um, I think the fun... I, I mean, I think we all have this kind of... Um, we want to play in a way. We want to find. We want to, you know, you go through this protocol. You go to this supplementary appendix. You try to figure out if there any any flaw, any bias. Yeah. I think this is a um, stimulating part. Yes, yes. Not, maybe not fun because fun can be... But yeah. it's it's really stimulating. Stimulating is the and, right word. Um, yes. So yeah, I think this is a, uh, an important thing. This research is really stimulating, interesting, sometimes fun, as you said. Yes. And this is also a part uh, why I really like it. I think that let me build on that a little bit. I think sometimes when you've done it a lot, a lot, you have an intuition right off the bat. There's something there, and sometimes you read it, and I can. Uh, for instance, this thing we were talking about in the car the other day, we can't talk about because it's uh, not for public dissemination, but it was something where I immediately had an intuition that there's something wrong about the math, and then later it took me like 15 minutes to start. Ah, yeah, 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 it was really interesting, yeah. Yeah, so those kind of moments, it's like, what, what, what is the appeal there? I mean, it is, go ahead, you want to say something? No, yes. no, yeah, I think you are really on something, sometimes you have the intuition, you have the intuition, but recently you, you made also a video about beliefs, so yes. intuition can also be biased, so you have to really be rigorous, but sometimes it's your intuition that will draw you your attention on some subject, some research project, and then you will try to figure out what is going on, and this is really the stimulating part. Yes, I, and I think that's the key. Intuition, you can't go on, twi you can't go and write a paper and say it's my intuition that's something wrong here. You have to articulate it, and uh, you, first, of all, you have to, first of all, you have to think it through in your mind so you don't understand it. And then you have to articulate it to someone else so they understand it. And that's not always easy because some people, and one person on this podcast said that this person thinks so quickly, sometimes it's hard to even explain their thought process. You remember this? Yeah, I remember yeah, John. Yeah. John. Yeah. And John Ioannidis. And I think it's and true because yeah. he's that sharp. Yeah. right? And, and also I think what is really important and what I learned with you, you have to be ready that your intuition is wrong. Correct, I think I so. Think, I think it's just really important to not to ju just go in one way, but and that's what we are doing also in our meeting in our meeting, we are pushing back the ideas. We have... Uh, yes, there's some uh, surly people at the meeting who do nothing but argue. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's yeah, good. Yeah, it's, it's really good. good. Very yeah. good, yeah. They, they're very helpful because it also helps craft our replies and our responses. Um, along those lines, I just want to tell you the thing that I was working on. You read my Substack this morning? Not yet. I was uh, preparing oh, for this, this. Uh, okay. plenary session. Well, it's really interesting. So I was reading... I think it's... I think it's great, but I, I, I didn't read it yet. Okay, well, I'll tell you, that's good. Well, then you're, you're a naive slate. So there's this health affairs paper in the paper, and you don't have to comment on this issue. The health affairs paper is looking at whether or not U.S. masking policy in 2020 like resulted in fewer cases. And so the question is, if we compare counties that had a mask mandate to counties that didn't have a mask mandate, you know, can we show that the counties with the mask mandate have lower cases than the ones that out. Okay, that's the question. But then they realize that, of course, well, you know, these are very different places across the country. Some people vote for one guy and the other guy, and they had different pandemic trajectories at the time. How do you sort all this out? And they kind of cleverly did one thing, which was that they matched counties based on a number of covariates, but one of the covariates they matched was R coefficient or coefficient of, you know, spread, um, as well as case counts. And that was what they matched. And so it allows them to create a very elegant figure that says up to time zero, the counties that are case that are ma mandate or no mandate counties had identical trajectory of cases up to time zero. But then thereafter, there was a difference in time. And so it suggests the causal effect of the masking policy, at least they think. And I started thinking about it. And, um, and it was fun for me because I immediately had an intuition that this would be very difficult to do. And you'll read the piece, and I have found, I think, several lines of argument that why, like, I think they're off the mark. But one line was very interesting to me, which was, I realized that, like, what they were trying to do is you're trying to match a county with another county that had the, quote, same pandemic trajectory, and but one had a mask mandate, one didn't, up to time zero. And to match pandemic trajectory, what would be the gold standard way to do that? And the gold standard way would be that we do random zero prevalence day by day or random PCR testing day by day of all pe randomly to, to really match them by the exact same spread. But of course, we don't have that. So what's the surrogate for that? The surrogate for that is the cases. But the cases are the cases of people reporting to the CDC. So to be a case, you, Timothy, if you have a cough or cold, you have to go to the, you know, the local place and get tested for it. But places that institute mask mandates and those that don't, there's something different about the people in those places. And I suspected that the people in the places that don't institute the mask mandates, that on balance, that the same Joe, the same Timothy, 
is not getting the test on the same moment. They're only going to get the test if they have more symptoms than the person in the mask mandate county. And they're only going to get that the test later when the symptoms continue or worsen or persist. They're on the margin. They're slightly less likely to be tested. Why? Because that's part of parcel of the attitudes of these places. Some places take it very seriously and you mask in your sleep, San Francisco, and some places don't take it seriously and you drive 40 miles out of town and it's like Mardi Gras, you know? And, and as I started to think about that problem, what I realized is that they're matching based on what they think is pandemic trajectory, but it's very likely to be different. And that difference is not likely to be random. It's very likely to be tied to the intervention. And so they're probably not matching on it at all. And probably what they're doing is they're matching in a way that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The trajectory was already more brisk in the control than the intervention because it is that brisk despite fewer and delayed testing. So anyway, I put that, that's one of my three points. But okay, it took a long time for me to sort of think through that and see that. And one of the points I still haven't fully thought through and so I invite readers to push back. But it is a sort of... Um, you know, um, people play those games, like whatever, that Wordle. But this is a type of game to play cognitively. It's just a game that doesn't have rules that are understandable to most people, but it does sharpen your thinking. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's a game, but it's a game about trying to figure out what is most accurately... What's the truth? Yeah, I, I didn't want it to yeah. to tell that word, but yeah, I mean, the scientific, uh, scientific truth in, in a way... So, yeah. And on that positive note. On that positive note, I thank you very much for inviting me. Pleasure. We'll be back for the next installment. Listeners can see if they like this this episode. We'll be back for the next installment of, I think we'll call the, this... The, the, there's a lot of uh, ongoing projects. Uh, so many. So I know. I almost talked about one or two, but then yeah. somebody's going to scoop us. But I mean, globally in the VK, VK press at lab, so... Yeah, some of these people... Yeah. We have everybody. I mean, we have we have researchers. We have a chief medical officer of a company. Yeah. <laughs> we do, actually. Absolutely. Yeah, he Absolutely. comes. He comes. Yeah. He's a very eager participant. Okay. Uh, until next time, this is the VK Prasad Lab Updates. Timothy Olivier, Geneva right. Hospital, Switzerland. Thank you very much for inviting me.